0: Welcome to this special videocast of the Weather Pod with Alan Thorpe and me, David Rogers. Our guests today are Jerry Langwasser and Makoto Sua, who've joined us to discuss the prospects and opportunities for weather and climate services in Africa. Many of you know Jerry well from his tenure as Assistant and Deputy Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization and as Chief Executive of the South African Weather Service. Makoto is a Senior Disaster Risk Management Specialist at the World Bank. Currently, he's leading and supporting a wide range of hydromet projects in Africa. Prior to joining the bank, Makoto also worked for the WMO in their Geneva office and in their regional office in Nairobi. Jerry and Makoto, welcome to the WeatherPod.
1: Yes, welcome. Thank you very much for the
2: invitation. Yes, uh, we've
0: been looking forward to this. So to kick things off, I'd like to start by asking you about your perceptions of the state of weather services across the continent. Jerry, you've been working for many years within weather services and also have a global view of the public sector. How is Africa faring in terms of improving its public services and its national meteorological-related services in particular?
1: Hi, David. Thanks. I, I think one of the key things is that it is a mixed picture. So there are centers of excellence and there are those that are really struggling. Not that it's something new. I think it has been uh, ongoing for quite a while, but COVID-19 and the pandemic has just tended to magnify uh, the problem where the med services are not, have not been as strong as they could be uh, both in the past and in the present. So centers of excellence, I think there are some in the North. Um, You could count Morocco, uh, for example, Nigeria, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere of Africa, but also in the Southern uh, parts, you could count South Africa and probably Tanzania to some extent, um, and Kenya. But for the rest, I think um, the struggles continue. And most of those struggles really have to do with three things. It's uh, technology, finance, as well as uh, human, human skill.
3: Um, that's interesting, Makoto. What what's your thinking on this? I, I I guess I'm interested in whether you think the priorities of governments really include the meteorological and hydrological services, and so that they actually recognise the need to make targeted investments and sort of increase the core support in this area. Do they do they really take it seriously, the
1: governments?
2: well as you know a number of african countries are facing a serious climate and a disaster challenges so it's not surprising that in many countries uh, the climate agenda is high priority uh, since the climate data and the services uh, should inform that the various climate actions it is not surprising to see that some national meteorological and hydrological services have made uh, good progress in recent years However, in other countries, uh, prioritizing the climate action has not been necessarily translated into uh, investments in hydromet services. Um, In in those countries, uh, there is somehow a disconnect between the climate agenda and the hydromet services. Um, Why is that? Um, Well, well, let's take a look at the World Bank's latest uh, Africa climate business plan. Well, the plan identified at the five strategic pillars, uh, including food security and the r- resilient rural economy, ecosystems, sustainability and the water uh, s- security, low carbon and resilient energy, regions, cities and green mobility, and climate shocks and risk governance. Well, any countries that the uh, priority climate action could be as broad as you know, those five strategic pillars. I mean, we can argue that the meteorological and hydrological services can underpin all those, you know, the pillars and lay the foundation for evidence-based actions. But in many countries I'm working with, the use cases of hydromet services in such areas are still limited. That's not necessarily easy to convince decision makers why investments in hydromet services are needed to support uh, such climate actions. Well, at the same time that we have to be aware that there are a number of the uh, competing priorities uh, for the government. In addition, as Jerry mentioned, we now have to keep close eye on uh, how the post COVID world would impact government's priorities. Um, we, uh, meaning those who are working in the hydrometric issues, will continue to argue that sufficient public funding is needed to ensure the provision of, um, you know, key public services like early warning. Uh, But we also um, need to think about the grand reality. Um, I would not be surprised if the allocation of uh, public financing or the human-human resources the hydromet sector uh, does not dramatically improve over the next five years or longer in a number of countries. The question is, uh, should we give up? Uh, My answer is definitely no. Uh, With rather limited resources available, In the public sector, I think the key question now is um, how the public sector can leverage the capacity of the entire climate ecosystem or whether enterprise to respond to the needs of users and um, what strategic role uh, should the public sector play. So in in summary, there are different different levels of progress in the continent, with some countries facing a lot of challenges to make progress. But even those who are better off, they might need to think how to sustain and improve better services in the resource-constrained environment for the next few years.
3: I suppose uh, it's it's a bit surprising to me, in a way, you're making the point that, that we have to make the point that meteorology, weather and climate predictions are incredibly important to save lives and to protect infrastructure and develop economies. In a sense, uh, perhaps we take it a bit for granted in the developed world that that those things are obvious. I think you sort of said perhaps that that point needs to be made. Still, it's I find that a little bit surprising given, you know, how vulnerable people are to to these sorts of phenomena. I don't know if you have a a, a view on that, Makoto.
2: Well, but there are, again, that there are a number of things that which needs to, that, uh, you know, that they keep feeding the people, uh, including that, for example, the agriculture productivities, uh, or that the, we need to, the government uh, have to ensure that, the, you know, people, the kids are going to school every day and etc etc. So it's, it's, it's really that the matter of the prioritization and exercise. And um, I, I think, I, I think that the, the government do, ex- do recognize the importance of high services or disaster risk management. Um, But then again, with limited, you know, scarce uh, the the financial and human resources, I I think that uh, they haven't really done uh, or they have not been able to do enough uh, for that sector.
3: I wanted just to move on to another point, which is, is sort of implied by what you've said so far, both of you. You know, one of the weaknesses that's been highlighted by yourselves and by the WMO is the problem of sustaining high quality uh, meteorological observations. And of course, we know the problem is not limited to the African continent. But since this is such a large landmass, its influence on global weather patterns is really significant. And the paucity of data really does impair the overall quality of global weather predictions and, and weather forecasts uh, for Africa. I wonder how you see this changing in the future
2: well um we, we have seen that the uh, you know development partners are investing more in hydromet services in africa in recent years uh investment from the world bank alone have quadrupled over the last 10 years and most of the projects do have a component supporting an observing system um, so it would be an interesting interesting exercise to assess how such investments have changed the availability of meteorological data from the continent which in turn you know contributed to the uh, improvement of overall quality of numerical weather prediction and weather forecasts. Um, while I don't have any solid evidence to assess that, we know there are still a lot to be done to improve the availability of data uh, from Africa. Uh, I think that there are two issues uh, to address to improve data availability one issue is the sustainability of the observing system, and the other is to make data uh, more readily available and accessible. Um, a number of colleagues uh, from National Meteorological and Hydrological Services attribute the uh, sustainable, uh, sustainability challenge to the lack of funding um, and also human resources, which is true, uh, you know, support from the government to the hydromet sector is not always uh, is strong. Well, development partners may support capacity development, but retaining skillful engineers and then IT experts in the public sector is often difficult because salary in the public sector is not necessarily competitive. So I think by now the sustainability of observing network is uh, is a well-recognized challenge, uh, both by national meteorological and hydrological services themselves, and then also by um, development partners. But if you ask whether, you know, such a recognition has led to the significant improvement of the situation, uh, the answer is unfortunately no. Well, I one hypothesis uh, one might have is um, it is a purely the funding problem. If there is enough funding uh, for operational maintenance, the sustainability issue can be solved. Um, the at the strategic observing financing facility uh, solve argues that, uh, you know, data to be assimilated in the numerical order prediction are global public goods uh, and thus the need to be financed by um, global partners, uh, you know, around the world. I think in reality, the issue could be a little bit more complex and more to do with the NMHS is the institutional capacity itself. Not only money, but funding is definitely part of the equation. Um, I think that also the better alignment of incentives for data exchange is important. Uh, the, the logic behind it, the global uh, data exchange is, uh, as I understood, if, you, if everybody shares data, everybody should get benefits through, for example, the improved quality of global numerical weather prediction. And this should be working as an incentive mechanism for data, for, for data exchange. Well, apparently this is not working as such, uh, at least in a number of countries uh, we are working with at the moment. Uh, one area we are providing support to those countries is to ensure they access and utilize global numerical weather prediction products uh, so that they can improve the quality of forecasts uh, rather quickly in a cost-effective way. Uh, more operational use of such global numerical weather you know, prediction products could also eventually Reinforce this uh, entire incentive mechanism for data exchange, because more benefit, more benefits an NMHS uh, finds in global numerical weather prediction, the stronger the incentive should be for them to contribute to its uh, improvement through the uh, global data exchange. Uh, but we will we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, another aspect uh, we need to consider is uh, how the community can benefit from uh, uh, data other than you know those from NMHSs. There are a number of non-state actors in Africa who are operating their own meteorological stations, including commercial farmers, mining sectors, academia, etc. We also see that some actors are crowdsourcing some type of data, as well as using new technologies to collect uh, targeted data. Um, These would offer uh, for countries to further beef up uh, their capacity to observe meteorological phenomena. So obviously, there are challenges to address data availability in Africa, but there are a few emerging opportunities and new ideas, uh, as briefly discussed. Um, I mean, but those opportunities to me are currently still existing as isolated dots. Uh, we do need to connect those dots to provide more holistic solutions uh, going forward.
0: So, so picking picking up on that, I'd like to uh, ask Jerry. You know, as basically as Makota has just said, we talk about. Observations are used by many other services and are produced by uh, from are available from many sources. We see moves in Europe and the long-standing policies in the U.S. to make meteorological data and and other data for that matter freely available to use and reuse, as spurring a lot of economic activity. And there are numbers in Europe which are quite spectacular in terms of the contribution to the economy from an open data policy. Do you think increased investment in the public sector can lead to more open data policies throughout the continent?
1: It's a, it's a complex challenge, which I think needs and requires that we view this through a very different lens. I think from the hydromet community, this problem has been viewed purely as a humanitarian challenge. But actually it is not. It's an economic challenge. Uh, I think the mindset that we have uh, in most med services that selling data uh, is a solution to the problem uh, of investments or a lack of investments by governments uh, in in Hydromet and especially in in observation networks. It seems to have come out uh, and and probably even the view um, that the this is a humanitarian problem. For me, is a remnant. Uh, of the emergence of the science and the strengthening of the science from the post-World War II uh, era, if I may say so, where I think the emphasis was always about you know lives lost and how you're going to save lives uh, through this technology uh, and the science. And the improvements have been made uh, to a large extent, again, taking into cognizance various players. The private sector had always had a role to play, whether it was the production of the role or a thermohyrograph, uh, the, the paper itself, or the mechanisms in it. And med services never queried that. Uh, in some cases in the developing world, med services had little workshops. I remember when I took over the weather service um, in 2003, uh, there was a workshop uh, that produced um, uh, rain rain gauges, right? Uh, tipping Tipping bucket rain gauges, nothing automatic. Uh, But this was already in in the 21st century. So the transition uh, from the old manual technology to the current technologies, that innovation was not largely driven by med services, even though the demand was there, Uh, but it was driven by the private sector. Uh, And and the reason I raise this is because to a very large extent, if we see meteorology and hydromet data as economic data, Right. Just as it is about production and just as the World Bank is concerned, for example, about poverty, poverty relates to a whole value cycle in, from food production uh, with things reaching the markets, people being employed and so forth and so on. Um, and so to a large extent, if we view it as economic data, then I think we have an opportunity to address it in a very different way. Um, again, taking lessons from Europe, right? I remember one, um, one um, Hydromet uh, director from uh, a Scandinavian, one Scandinavian um, med service uh, getting award, an award from government for making data freely available. So the reason I say it's an economic issue means that government intervention, not in the, only in terms of providing uh, revenue uh, or money or finance to the med service, but actually in policy and policy directive is important. Because in the end, I view it in this way. If you were a, if, 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 if this was your household, right, the world was your household, and you trying to manage risks to the economy, and here's one risk which contributes up to 80% of your risks on your economy, I, that would be, if you were to prioritize everything else that you would need to do to ensure that you mitigate against those risks and you build some form of buffer against them, then you would certainly that would be one of your highest priorities. But at the moment, ironically, because it is viewed hydromet is viewed as a humanitarian issue, it is way down there in terms of the priority list, right? Um, and we're trying all attempts disaster risk. And the and the narrative around disaster risk, uh, and hopefully that raises uh, the impact. But again, we continue to simply view that through the lens of how many lives uh, saved. In fact, not even saved. We actually look at it in relation to how many lives lost. And the public media, uh, that's what we talk about. That's what you know. How many people were killed in the recent flood? And you say in relation to everyone else that re uses that road in, er- in relation to everyone else or all the other economic impact on that stretch of road where that, those three, four lives were lost. What is the impact of that economic loss? Uh, through transport, through the road itself, through the lack of movements of goods and services on that stretch of road, because you've had a major flood that has wiped out the road. And, and again, I'm not downplaying the importance Uh, of lives and livelihoods. What I am uh, arguing for is that I think we need to change the narrative and say, if I was the prime minister of a country and 80 to 90% of all disasters are related to this one um, or this area, I would then make every effort to say, what then do I need to do? And if one of those questions is invest uh, in the observation networks, that will give me much more insights into what this hazard is about and how I might then mitigate uh, that hazard using various mechanisms, policy interventions, uh, economic policy changes, uh, including uh, uh, a policy change where government says all this data will be made freely available. Because I think for now, it's sort of left to the heads of med services to make that decision and some unfortunately um, are still making the decision that it, it's, it's a revenue source rather than a solution source for mitigating against risks to the economy, including livelihoods, which then in, in impact um, on, on individuals in the economy. So I think a, a shift uh, in emphasis is absolutely crucial and is important, especially now. Now that we also will see the impact of COVID-19. Now, one of the major impacts of COVID-19 is economic, right? In a globally connected economy, the impact of COVID has been major. And for, may, for most weather services on the continent, who other than the government grant are dependent on aviation revenue, right? The lack of any aircraft flying has meant a decimation of that particular revenue stream. Uh, which then has a down uh, 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 in a a sense and and, 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 uh, accentuates the problem of not having sufficient resources. So even those med services that have a policy environment that allows them to retain some form of revenue that they raise outside of the government grant that they are given, for most of those, that particular resource has now gone. And so I think it'll probably take two to three to five years um, uh, Makoto in in my view uh, for this impact to be reversed unless there is a fundamental shift in how governments uh, uh, do some of the policy intervention in relation to to COVID-19. And I've spoken about how I think every, every economic shock Right, governments go to infrastructure investments as a mechanism to fuel the economies again. And so, one of the uh, issues then for me is how can you have a policy directive that almost says that for every stretch of road that you construct, there must be some observing network that goes with that, whether it's that one for stretch of 10 kilometers, say, there's there's an automatic weather station or there's some technology that that you have to invest in to ensure that uh, you have some way of knowing what the hazards um, that road is going to face over the next 10 years uh, and so forth and so on. So uh, for me, if you do that, uh, especially when you look at what kind of technologies uh, we intend to invest in, right? for this sustainable pathway. Because in the end, climate change isn't climate change is an economic problem. It was a choice uh, about about uh, energy source. So if you are going to invest in alternative energy to what has created the problem, then you say, well, for wind, whether it's for wind, for solar, uh, for any other alternative energy source, uh, a network is a fundamental requirement to be able to understand the efficacy uh, of that energy source and its ability to supply what is required for the world going forward. So uh, in, in, in conclusion, I think on that, just that thought process, uh, I would say that climate change is a, is a fundamental economic problem. The problem of met services and the lack of hydromat and the lack of observations and networks is because we viewed it through a very narrow humanitarian and have made arguments continuously through this very narrow uh, window that basically says it's a humanitarian problem about loss of lives, and not that it is a fundamental economic problem. And because it's a fundamental economic problem, that it does require a certain level of uh, high um, policy intervention by governments, which includes not just investments, but in fact policy directives Um, that can help resolve some of those issues including making data freely available
0: we talked about post-covid and we talk about uh, build back better and what we're what you're really saying is that you know we're moving to a digital economy whether it's you know improving road transportation it's using information more effectively so the meteorological services should be at the heart of that digital economy i mean there's certainly major players in it and think differently about how they view their view them themselves as organizations and i think you make a very important point about this sort of shift from from the focus of the humanitarian focus of an economic one it's it really is essential
3: yeah i think um you know it, it really chimes with a number of thinkers at the moment are on, on economics, and in particular, how to assess the value of, of particular information or data streams, and, and actually that evaluation of created value by the meteorological community, you know, feeds very well into an economics lens that you're talking about. And we have, mm. I guess what you said, which I, I find quite appealing, is that we have to be more sophisticated, perhaps, in the way that we do those assessments. To make the argument, I, I just wanted to move us on, if I may, to to a sort of related topic, Jerry. If I could keep with you, mm. we know that regional cooperation is is quite a trend in in many parts of the world, you know, including in in the meteorological world, where you know smaller countries see the benefit from pooling together knowledge and resources, and you know, obviously, for myself coming from Europe. One sees that the European countries have really uh, done a lot of this. They've created several uh, structures like UMETSat, UMETNet, which is you know a network of thirty-one European met services, and of course ECMWF uh, as a way of of creating a kind of cost-efficient and sharing infrastructure amongst their national met services. I wonder, Jerry, is there any sense in which this could work in Africa? Uh, and if, if not, in a way, why not?
1: Well, it's, it's actually interesting because um, I think there was a period in the uh, 70s and 80s where uh, drought was a major focus. right? You might recall Ethiopia was uh, sort of the kid with a swollen yep. stomach was the um, postcard. Uh, yep. for the continent and and the vagaries of drought in the continent. During that period, uh, ironically, um, well, let me not say ironically, but um, what was created as a response, right, to that major crisis uh, were these various drought monitoring centres. Um, and these were created uh, on the continent Through um, economic economic zones, so the continent is divided. So you have SADC, which is the Southern African Development uh, um, uh, Community. Then you have ECOWAS, which is on the east, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, And these were largely these institutions were largely created um, to then come up with um, uh, seasonal outlooks. And these created and they created seasonal outlook forums where or drought monitoring forums and so on a quarterly basis community would come together meteorologists uh, community from academia and so forth and there would be a discussion on uh, what the latest uh, outlook or or forecasts uh, seasonal forecasts long-term forecasts look like Uh, and then there would be uh, at the end of that an advisory or, or document would be published which basically goes out to the public and says, um, you know, we're anticipating a wetter than normal or drier than normal uh, season coming forward. So there is um, a foundation for cooperation. I think the question then is how do you evolve that from what it is currently, which is purely focused on droughts or to a large extent focus on droughts. And I think uh, the emerging climate services uh, context um, is helping to do that, but it is not uh, in my view as uh, consistently utilized through the continent in the same way, right? Um, and, and I think it points to uh, one, the opportunities that there are there. So if you go into SADC, uh, SADC has taken advantage of a completely allied project and I'll come back to this later on about leadership and management uh, and, and what that means uh, for what has been largely insular institutions purely focused on their own backyard. So I have a problem with my observation networks. I have a problem with technology. I have a problem uh, uh, with money and, and people and, and people not looking outside of, them, of themselves and their institutions to what else is there uh, in, in the country, for that example. I'm not even going outside of one's country, but what else is there in the country that I can take advantage of, which can then uh, help uh, resolve some of my challenges, but also make a contribution uh, to, to the rest of it. So, so you might have heard of uh, uh, the Sky Project, which is a radio, um, a radio um, uh, observatory, which I think is shared between a number of countries. Uh, in South Africa and, and in SADC, and also is shared with, with uh, Australia. A spinoff of all of this has been high performance computing capability being made available to, to digest all of this data that would come out of this. Right? Um, and so um, I then worked with the Center for High Performance Computing, which was set up purely for physics research. Uh, and saying, here's an opportunity for us, for you to work as a backup for the weather service, which doesn't have a backup for its uh, high performance computing. Uh, But out of that, then spun out a project, which basically said all of these SADC countries that have some role to play uh, in this radio observatory, were receiving supercomputers at the universities to start training people on, on how to run them, how to maintain them, all the, all, and everything else that goes with it. Uh, and a spinoff out of that, just to cut it short, is that uh, one of the beneficiaries then of that project was training in hydrometeorology and running models and so forth. And so uh, SADC has taken advantage of that, and that component is now helping to fuel, uh, um, to fuel climate services in SADC.
3: So, so do, you think it, that, do you think there is an appetite then for, for such cooperation?
1: There is an appetite for cooperation. I think it needs to be encouraged in many ways. And I think one of the things that we need to take advantage of is probably the, this transition of the continent to a single economic, uh, e- economic trading area. Because I think there it starts to present huge opportunities uh, on the scale that we have seen in, in Europe, for example where uh, everything from procurement uh, to the ability to put together continental scale institutions that are focused on resolving a particular problem uh, would be highly possible. But again, those will require, uh, I think, policy intervention, but also uh, if I may challenge Makoto, <laughs> I think uh, different thinking from, from all the uh, multi, <clears throat> multi-donor agencies uh, uh, and aid agencies in general to saying how then do you foster and support this kind of uh, innovation that helps move everything forward and hopefully resolve these perennial problems about data accessibility data availability um and and even observation networks.
0: so makoto how do we do that <laughs> as jerry says you know these these initiatives need money so um what kind of possibilities are there in, in the development community?
2: Yeah, well, at least I think that there is an overall recognition within the, you know, development community uh, that is transboundary issues, which requires a good regional collaboration. And this is uh, the area we can expect also the economies of scale. Um, and as discussed earlier, uh, we know that the availability of financial and uh, human resources in a number of countries in the hydrometh sector is rather limited, especially in those you know small countries. There are a number of small countries in Africa, so it makes sense that, that those countries you know pool resources as much as possible and to create more cost-effective system to produce high-quality services. And in fact, that the uh, as as Jerry already mentioned, there there are a number of uh, certain initiatives in every subregion of Africa to bring uh, national meteorological hydrological services together. Um, you know, including that the uh, this uh, the climate outlook fora, in the sub-regional, uh, you know, the, uh, the sub-regional level and the development of the, uh, some of the common uh, guidance products to cover a group of countries nearby, uh, for instance, those for severe weather uh, forecasting and flash floods. And of course, the regional trainings are uh, very, very common. Uh, can we or, or should we do more than, than what are being done today? Um, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of things that each sub-region can do to strengthen the regional collaboration to benefit all um, from regional data exchange. I mean, to some extent that exists, uh, but if you look at very closely, for example, right now I'm working in West Africa, um, but data exchange really relies on the personal relationship between the regional center and the National Metallurgical Hydrological Services. So this is not really institutionalized That when the persons move on, that the, sometimes you know that the data from flow from the particular countries goes to nearly zero so I'm um, is still happening so there's a lot to do uh, uh, to strengthen uh, you know for example the regional data exchange also the pooling resources uh, you know the computational resources and niche expertise I mean many countries request us to um, you know uh, to do that the limited area, running the limited area models and have the high performance computers. And of course, we can ask the question whether it's really the cost effective investments to, uh, you know, all the uh, 48 sub-Saharan African countries uh, have their supercomputers uh, to run the models. Uh, perhaps the answer is no. And um, we don't have any luxury to do that at, at the current, uh, you know, the, the financial and the human capacity constraints. Um, joint research and development activities is definitely needed. I mean, that the research, uh, is, is needed to improve the uh, services, but I, I think that research agenda is, um, not well financed in Africa, uh, so far. Um, how are we going to move forward? How, how to advance this, this discussion? I think that that also requires and benefit from the stronger regional cooperation. Um And then also that the common market, as Jerry also mentioned, the common market, creating the common market to attract more the private sector investments, as there's a, a whole lot of the possibilities by strengthening the regional collaboration. Um, but of course, the doing so uh, requires a strong political will. And uh, if that exists, I'm sure that many development partners, uh, including the World Bank, would support that. I mean, regional collaboration in Hyderabad services in Europe is definitely a good example, uh, which many other regions can, can can learn from.
1: And it's encouraging to hear that, um, I think, you know, the World Bank would, would obviously want to support uh, regional issues. I think where, where we need to also start to think about innovative ways uh, is, for example, uh, uh, artificial intelligence and, and um, and the current cloud uh, computing i, I think we, we we it's now possible to move away from assuming that every single med service must have a supercomputer or high performance computer i think if you're going to run a very local area model uh, and you don't necessarily have that capacity the capacity in the cloud uh, is there and should be able to do this but of course it still begs the question Do you have the skills base uh, to do that? Do you have the people uh, in your service to do that? But I think if we start to think, you know, where where cloud computing is or was five years ago, where it is at present, um, and where it would be in the next five years, it should be possible, I think, to invest in a very small med services ability to tap into the cloud, run its own model. Uh, So in other words, what I'm saying is, We've seen a lot of demonstration projects on multi hazards. We've seen um, how we've used in the past, the ability of those that have the, the resource, a supercomputer to run numerical weather prediction models and, mal- and run multi ensembles, and then make the output available to the country that is not able to, to, to produce that on its own. And they then ingest it in their local information and make that available to the public. Those were the demonstration projects that were built on this, uh, in a sense, I, I don't know whether to call it concentrated ability in only a few, but what cloud computing um, does present is an opportunity to, I don't want to say democratize that, <laughs> uh, but maybe that's not the right word, but in a, in a way, uh, uh, decentralize that and allow even a small, com, um, a small med service that has the people and the resources uh, to to run a small a local area model to do so, um, even at uh, three three point three kilometer um, resolution.
0: You could possible. argue you need to move away even from there, and then you. I mean, for example, look in tropical Africa. You have they have access to a four kilometer tropical model, cloud cloud convection permitting model from the Met Office, which can be used from a forecast point of view when we look at regional cooperation it's how do you go beyond that how do you say well i have the the tools to understand what's happening with rainfall how do i use the information and then i need to collaborate on a regional at a you know regional uh scale in order to utilize that information to combine that information with uh, information from other sectors how do i improve the road uh, yeah. it's to prov- it's providing real-time information combined with the models but I, my focus has got to shift away from i need to be a, a modeler to i need to be a user of models and isn't it great that i can use the cloud and i then having access to the cloud is the is the tricky part to ha- having the bandwidth to take that information to take the digital information blend it with other information and then turn it into something that is really useful and it's we haven't seemed to we haven't got there Yet. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, no, we haven't got there yet, and this is why my sense is that it's 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 a requirement for government policy intervention, but also in a way advocacy from this community, uh, along the same lines that I'd argued earlier, because governments are making investments or inviting the private sector to make investments in broadband, right? But that's driven by a very separate community which is purely interested in telecoms and cell phones that are faster and are able to take better pictures, right? Um, and yet none of us uh, in our community, I think, are sitting at that very same table and saying this is critical infrastructure for allowing for certain developments and for this community to make even better inputs into uh, economic models and how you actually safeguard uh, economic investments from this uh, these multiple hazards. Um, and I think until we start to make those noises and make that known um, until we make that known then i think we we basically say, face the same challenge uh, which is that these investments continue to diminish over time with a huge global impact yeah
3: i mean it's been a fascinating discussion about cooperation and, and regional cooperation i guess we've heard in previous uh, weatherpod episodes from other guests that there's also really a, a great opportunity for global cooperation here because many of the global models actually are crying out for evaluation, for validation data that's not um, that's not ingested into the initial conditions of the forecasts, but which are incredibly useful to test processes and accuracy of, of weather predictions. And these national local measurements um, to have access of, for those for the global centers outside of the country in question is becoming quite a theme of importance and it shows that actually in a way it is really a global weather enterprise it, you know we all actually benefit if these flows of information people and training can be can be viewed very much at the larger scale in effect um, so just to just with that sort of reflection can i move on to Something I think you've mentioned, Jerry, already, um, but I wanted just to pick it up a bit more, and that is the role of the private sector in Africa. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've heard in the weather pod many times that we know the private sector is a very big contributor to the overall global weather enterprise, uh, and there's increasing uh, expertise and ability of the private sector con- to contribute. Yet, on the other hand, you know, the relationship between the public, private and academic sectors are not always as smooth and as straightforward as one might like. And I just wonder, Jerry, how do you feel about this in terms of its developments in the in the African context?
1: Well, I think uh, um, we touched on the theme of uh, the quality of services, because I think that's where the main contention really sits. It's not so much in the fact that there's technology which is produced uh, by the private sector to acquire the data, right? uh, to yeah. store it, to transmit it. I think all of those things are, are kind of understood that the roles and responsibilities, uh, which are sort of assigned and agreed, some are not necessarily written. And then I think there's, it's on the services side where the value add uh, and innovation space is happening. And I think that's where there's opportunity for greater cooperation. And I, I call it cooperation because uh, my sense is that uh, it calls for leadership and management. Now, um, often, what, what do I mean by that? I think what I mean by that is that it's, it's the ability of individuals who are given a responsibility to head up an institution. And in the case of uh, the WMO, often Those institutions are seen as permanent representatives of the countries, not of their institution, but of the countries that they represent. And so when they come to the table, it's which in representing the country, they should then have an ability to speak not only for their national institution, but for everyone else who's involved in the weather enterprise at a national level. I mean, you'd be amazed in every single of the countries on the continent, the number of networks that exist outside of the medicines, whether it's in the agriculture department, whether it's run by academia, as Marco, Marco Dora or Elia alluded to, whether it's run by a research institute, which is focused purely on the citrus industry. So if it's, it's, if it's grain in agriculture, often you find these boards maze boards uh, or whatever they have their own uh, institute that does the research for them and advises on them uh, and and they have networks of their own and often those networks are not even assimilated or at least used uh, or recognized or acknowledged by uh, the national weather services so which for me makes even the conversation very difficult because often even those institutions have private sector players who might be providing them a crop forecast, for example, or spray condition forecasts, et cetera, which is not what um, uh, your, your weather service on average is able to do. And most certainly not even the agriculture departments, right? Because let's face it, uh, we're not yet uh, in in our government institutions. We're not yet uh, where we have governments of the future, <laughs> where there's integration. And in a sense, departments are representative of the challenges that we face. Uh, They're still very silo driven on a thematic basis. So the Department of Agriculture operates on its own, has its own systems. um, And I don't think um, the continent is necessarily unique in that respect. So it was was great to see when you had institutions or, or governments in Europe, for example, create sustainability ministries or um, which, which in a way suggested that uh, the focus was less than uh, just on one particular part um, of, of, of the mainstream economy. Uh, but we still have that. Most government departments are arranged by uh, economic activity, transport, agriculture, health uh, and so forth. And so uh, the question then is how do you get some level of integration uh, across this and I think uh, for me it would take certainly uh, leadership and management, which includes the ability to have conversations with the private sector about what kind of relationship you then have between these parties and part of that relationship can again be defined by a simple thing as a contract right? which basically stipulates roles and responsibilities and protection of IP and so forth even at the commencement of conversations often uh, some med services don't even know that you can put together a non-disclosure agreement (laughs) which basically says I'm going to tell you stuff um, that you know you might not like or that you might like and want to run with the other guys tell you the same thing but there's an understanding of what happens with that information when you leave that room Um, and 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 for me this also goes to boards Uh, and governors or or boards of directors who often don't come from the community and therefore don't understand the nuancing of the science and how to run these institutions. So the opportunities are there, I think to broaden the weather enterprise uh, through the continent, uh, but it'll take leadership and management. And part of that challenge I think is around how you develop the skills um, of those that are there but not only those that are already in service in government, but also those that in a sense are coming up in training and training institutions, right? Um, Often interventions in training for the continent, you go back to the 50s and the 60s have been on the technical excellence. So most guys who were trained in Russia uh, are now heads of the agencies uh, who were trained in the 60s, for example. Uh, have now just retired, most of them actually, from being heads of med services in their countries, right? Um, there are some who are being trained in China, uh, for example, at the moment. Uh, some of them can't return to the continent because the services don't have uh, the equipment or the computing or, the, uh, or not running the models. So they're not really fully engaged when they return. And they therefore go, as Makoto was saying, retention is difficult. So they go and work for the mines because now they can speak uh, Mandarin. uh, And um, I'm just using a a case from uh, from Zambia, uh, right, where uh, the copper mines are now employing meteorologists because they can speak Mandarin and they can pay better uh, than the public sector. Um, But so, yes, there is an opportunity to do so. uh, But I think it's going to call uh, for quite Uh, Of course, strong leadership and and the skills development for me uh, starts even with those that are coming up, not just the training and technical excellence, um, but also we need to find a way of injecting uh, leadership and management um, uh, training into their programs so that it becomes uh, part of what they want to do, stay in the public sector, but make a difference with others in partnership with others. And again, I go back to the same problem. If you were running the country and you were faced with this problem, you would not just rely on one sole source for your information if you were a prime minister. You would rely on whatever source of data, information, intelligence is available in the country, whether private or otherwise, must give me solutions to how I mitigate these problems and how I'm able to protect in a way, the economy, um, then I think it's a policy intervention as well. So an encouraging um, environment created by government to say this space is okay. It's okay for the private sector to come in and it's okay for people to collaborate and it's okay for the uh, public sector uh, to open its doors to having these collaborative opportunities contracted we create the environment where we protect through laws, et cetera, uh, and create the space for everyone to play a role, uh, then it can be done. It is being done in other parts of the economy. It's just not being done in med services because there is a sense that, again, it's a humanitarian intervention and not economy.
3: Uh, Jerry, as we all know, I think that managing public sector institutions is, is pretty challenging. And I wonder what do you think could be done to sort of improve the management of, of public sector, uh, particularly for you know current and future leaders of national meteorological and hydrological services?
1: Well, I think that um, one of the things we can do is actually piggyback um, either on existing uh, programs. Uh, the WMO, for example, has a capacity development program um, the national med services themselves have uh, programs. I know certainly the weather service that I used to head up had an agreement with Exeter where you could send people for technical training um, and so forth. But I think where it is lacking uh, in all these programs of capacity development, capacity intervention is actually on the training on, on leadership and management. And so uh, one of the proposals is to have an institute or an academy, which is dedicated to this, because again, purely because of this value cycle uh, of managing a a service of this nature. It's not your run of the mill institution uh, that can be run by everybody. Um, It can be run by everybody, but with the right information and knowledge, they can be taken to level of excellence. And so um, there's two choices really with this kind of academy is do you make it Um, a for-profit or for non-profit. And if it's for non-profit, then I think uh, that's probably the best model uh, for it, which then allows access to that for those that are in service. But it has to be a very uh, dedicated program where people will have to spend time uh, in learning. And obviously in the end, there's some certification uh, that goes out. So uh, that concept is in the mill at the moment and we've discussed. Uh, much more broadly. And I think one of the key questions then is if it is to be for nonprofit, then obviously sponsorships are key to making sure that you know, the Allens, the Davids, um, everyone who has a, an opportunity in their career to drive and to run such programs can contribute through a case study driven methodology uh, to, to that narrative and the coursework and the content uh, of this program from across the world. And that's the beauty about this, is we have a global community that has this skill set. most of them are now retired, semi-retired, uh, almost retired, uh, but still you know, engaged in the community never, <laughs> and never leave the community. So how do we actually tap into that wealth of knowledge to ensure that it's accessible to those that uh, may or may not even have ambition uh, to manage uh, such institutions in the future, right? Uh, but at least gives them an opportunity to access and tap into what it means to actually run uh, a, a successful national uh, med service. And as you said, in, in for the continent, uh, any future institution that may be a regional, sub-regional, that seeks to uh, advance the enterprise uh, should be able to do so. And so I think it, the, the call would be to both the private sector donor agencies and others uh, to play a sponsorship role to making sure that this can happen uh, and can happen soon.
0: So, so Makoto, do, do you see a specific role for the World Bank in this kind of initiative?
1: Well, of
2: course, we cannot underestimate the role of senior management and leaders uh, to move the needle, right? And and it is important that development partners uh, like the World Bank to empower uh, leaders to make a difference. Um, I think in in the current situation, uh, NMHS do need a type of leaders uh, who can contextualize the higher services in the broader political and the development context of the of the country. And at the end of the day, that what the government needs to do is to optimally allocate limited resources to address a number of development challenges. Uh, and NMHS uh, should strategically position itself uh, in that context. And the role of leaders and the senior management is, uh, is huge there. Um, as a development institution, you know, working on the uh, broad development agenda, I think that the World Bank, the entities like World Bank is well positioned to provide uh, support to the NMHS leaders to strategically position their institutions uh, in the broader development context. Well I also think that the you know external external partners like us uh, can help leaders and senior managements to equip with uh, you know knowledge and good practices from other countries and uh, from other regions and latest thinkings in the global hydrometric community as well as uh, potential options for development path so that they can make the more informed decisions and and this is indeed the area that which we do need more efforts in the future.
3: Well, Thank you, Makoto and Jerry, for joining us today. That's been a really great conversation, and we've covered in depth a number of really critical issues for for developing countries in Africa in particular. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks, Makoto and Jer- uh, Jerry. That was really uh, enlightening. Thanks a lot.
3: Appreciate
1: the opportunity. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for an interesting conversation today.